So I grew up in a, I'd say a middle class home. We went to church on Sundays. Most of the time it wasn't because I was looking for God, it was because I was looking for friends. Well, I went to college. That's when I was introduced to drugs. Cocaine became very popular for me. Just the whole bar atmosphere I, I chose to dive right into. You know, I graduated, found a job that I really started succeeding at. I was actually promoted at that job to take on different levels of responsibility around the nation. And one of my first deployments was back in my college hometown. I'd been there for about a month, month and a half, and uh, I ran into a, a really good friend of mine from college. We decided that we were going to a Jimmy Buffett concert. You know, we left and we were drinking and we were uh, just having fun in the car. It was a college road trip, as you will, uh, except we never really made it to the destination. the tree, my friend went through the windshield, and the young lady that was with us was thrown about 20, 35 yards. She's maimed to this day. Uh, my friend obviously died, and I broke 27 bones, including four, five, and six in my vertebrae. You know, I'll never forget the day that my parents had to come in and, and rehab, and uh, they had the conversation that, um, that it was very possible that I was going to jail for 40 years intoxicated manslaughter and intoxicated assault. When I left the hospital, I chose to go home with my parents and I remember the guilt hitting me like a Mack truck. I can't describe to you how far away from God I felt. Instead of turning to Jesus, I, I turned to more drugs, turned to more alcohol. I was on a mission to hurt myself even more. There was a girl that I was dating at this restaurant and she came to me one day and, and I'll never forget and she said, uh, I'm pregnant. I remember a prayer of God, if you really don't like me this much, why are you hurting her? I remember thinking I was his guinea pig, that he was just gonna abuse me, and that for some reason I'd drawn the short straw because of the bad things I'd done in my life. I was so sure that he was so mad at me. I was so sure that I had nothing to offer. I was so sure that I had crossed the line and that I couldn't go back. It was about three months after that, we decided to get married, much to everybody's chagrin. And during this time, God had started sending Christian men into my life and they took interest in me. And then they would help me and they would, they would guide me in the right direction. I, uh, Ended up going to trial and the judge stopped everything. He looked me square in the eye and he said, you know, Mr. Germer, I, I see a lot of these cases a year. He said, but there's something sort of different here. Can you tell me, are you in a program? Are you, are you doing anything? What seems to be helping you? And I remember sitting there for a second and dropping my head. And before I knew it, I looked up and I said, Jesus Christ. And you know, in a lot of ways, that was the first time I think I ever felt peace in a lot of ways, I think that was the only time I ever felt that things were gonna be okay. I was left with restitution, I was left with probation, I was left with some jail time, and uh, I had to go AA twice a week. Even though I was starting to experience freedom in my walk, it was probably the hardest one because I was dealing with all the emotions that I had always shoved down through my drug addiction. I, I was walking through all those emotions and whatever I'd done to other people's lives. I was like this tornado that just ripped through everything 
and got to the other side and when, when I got sober and thought everything was okay. I'd been in AA for about a year. When my pastor called me in, asked me to uh, take, take over for Celebrate Recovery, I was at our church. And I remember looking at him saying, are you kidding me? I, I, I'm barely functioning as it is and you want me to lead something? And I remember that night going home and praying with my wife as excited as we were. I remember, I remember my prayer of, God, you can't use me. How could you, how could you believe in me enough to do this? Don't you know what I've done? I can barely run my own life, much, much, very much run a, a ministry for you. There's no possible way. Over the next four years, the, the Celebrate Recovery that I had been asked to be the ministry leader of grew from 40 people to 150. And there were stories of freedom all around, but it was one step at a time. It was one Friday night at a time. It was one meeting at a time as, as God started showing me that He could use somebody that was broken. question I want us to wrestle with today, and it's a good one to wrestle through, is failure fatal? Is failure fatal? Can God use broken people, a broken past? Can he use people like us? I love that story of John, because what we see is a man who made some pretty serious mistakes, blew it, failed, and yet the last thing he said was, I discovered that God can use broken people just like me. Would you bow your heads? I want to pray for you before we get into the Word today. Father, I don't know the story of everyone in this room or everyone listening online, but you do. You know the inside story. You know the, the secrets. You know the brokenness. You know the whys. You know everything about them, Lord. And it's my prayer today, God, that you would change us in our perspective of failure even, and that we would see that any life surrendered to you, God, is a life that can be redeemed, restored, and renewed. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think there's something in us that roots for the underdog. Uh, by nature, lots of us are always rooting for um, people who are less than others. It's a part of us that knows that we've all fallen like Humpty Dumpty. We know, when we stop and think about it, that many of us are broken to pieces. And the question that we wrestle with is, can God or anybody put me back together? Can God use someone broken like me? Now, I think in a rational state of mind, which I'm in occasionally, but I think most of us in a rational state of mind, we would go, yeah, of course God can fix us, that failure is not fatal. We know that God is a God of hope. We know that he can redeem anything and anybody. Part of our struggle, though, is that we think that about other people more than we think that about ourselves. Hello. We look at people and go, yeah, I know that guy, Johnny. I can see his story and how God did something miraculous in his life, but I, I, that's him. I don't know that that could be me. Maybe you're here today and you don't know God yet. You don't have a relationship with him yet. Or maybe you've wandered far from him and you've wondered, can God repair, restore, redeem my life? Can he use me? We look at history and we see lots of examples of people who failed and yet they, they recovered. Uh, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, Michael Jordan, um, been retired for quite some time. But did you know that Michael Jordan was actually cut from his high school basketball team? Seriously. Like he was cut because he wasn't good enough to make the high school basketball team. And he went on to be, without a doubt, probably the greatest basketball player of all time. Walt Disney was fired. He was literally fired from a newspaper because, and I quote, he lacked imagination. <laughs> I would like to know who that guy was that fired Walt Disney. Oprah, another one more re uh, recent, was uh, 
uh, person in, in current history. She was demoted from her job as a news anchor because they didn't think she was a good fit for TV. Yeah, I think she's a gazillionaire right now because she proved that wrong. I could go on. History itself proves that failure, failure doesn't have to be fatal. I mean, I could go way back. Abraham Lincoln uh, failed like eight times to get elected to anything long before he became the president. Uh, Steve Jobs fired from the company that he created. It's an amazing story. And, and we see this in history. We know this. But way more important than history or the lives of people around us. And we would look at some of those. And again, the tendency is, yeah, but I'm no Oprah. I'm no Steve Jobs. I know Michael Jordan. They had the raw potential. I've got nothing but broken pieces. I know what some of us think. But we can look at the Word of God. And what I love about the Word is it doesn't put a positive spin on anybody or anything. It gives us the raw and the real stories time and time again. And we can see people who uh, blew it royally, horrible failure, and yet how God redeemed, restored, and renewed their life. In fact, what we see in the Bible is that those who've been humbled by life can be trusted with it. Let me say that again. One of the great lessons we see in the Word of God is that those who've been humbled by life, who've been broken by it, can be trusted with it. In fact, here's today's big takeaway. You walk away with something today, walk away with this truth. You can trust a person who walks with a limp. You can. You can trust a person who walks with a limp, especially when that person has surrendered their lives to God. We're going to be in Genesis this morning. We're going to take a look at a guy named Jacob. We looked at part of his story last week in Genesis 25. Uh, before we get into where we're going to be, let me just bring you up to speed on a few things. Uh, Jacob, in Genesis 25, we find him um, basically giving his brother a bowl of stew and in exchange getting Esau's birthright. Uh, not, not a good day for Esau, pretty good day for Jacob. Uh, as a result of Esau's foolishness and uh, Jacob's manipulation, uh, the circumstances to his own benefit, you can only imagine the tension that was in that home. I'm thinking they were pretty dysfunctional. Not a happy place for Jacob and Esau. Esau was pretty angry and pretty frustrated with his brother. Genesis 27, we move on uh, from Genesis 25, where we were last week. In Genesis 27, we find Jacob at it again. And this time, he's deceiving his own father. His dad, Isaac, was blind uh, and, and very old. And Jacob put on Esau's clothing so he would smell like Esau. He put, covered his arms with animal skin so he would feel hairy. Remember last week we talked about Esau means hairy one and, and that he would feel hairy like his brother. And he stole his brother's blessing. So not only did he steal his birthright through a bowl of stew, but now he steals the blessing that belonged to his brother. Genesis 27, let's pick it up, verse 35. Isaac says to Esau, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright and now he's taking my blessing. Skip down to verse 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. In other words, Esau said, daddy's old. Daddy doesn't have much longer on this earth. And when he's gone, my brother's gone because I'm going to kill him. Rebecca mama of these two boys, whose favorite was Jacob, got wind of this, found out what, she, what Esau planned to do, and she said, you got to run. You got to take off. In fact, go to your uncle Laban's house, leave here. And kind of fast forward to the story, over 20 years go by, two decades, a long time. And during that time, Jacob gets blessed. And if, if that's not epic grace, I don't know what is, because he really didn't deserve it. 
but he was blessed, and now he's a wealthy man. And God speaks to him and says, I want you to go home. It's time for you to go home. Jacob is hoping that bygones are bygones with his brother Esau. He's hoping that things are better, but he's not sure. And so we pick it up in Genesis chapter 32, verse 6. Uh, what Jacob said was he sent messengers on ahead to kind of test the water to see how things were going back home and see how his brother was. Verse 6 of Genesis 32. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. Oh, yeah, he's coming. And with 400 men, a small army is on our way. Verse 7, in great fear and distress, and I can only imagine how terrified Jacob was. Jacob, always planning, always conniving, always trying to come up with a way, divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. And he thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the other group may be left to escape. He'll come after one, maybe the other group can get away. Verse 9, then Jacob prayed. By the way, side note, when in trouble, really good thing to do. Oh God! Oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, I love this. James like, you did this to me, God. The Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. God, you told me to do this. By the way, it's not looking too good. Verse 10, and here's a humble heart. Something has changed in Jacob. There's more to come, but something changed. He says, I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Somewhere along the line, Jacob figured out, God, I, I know you've blessed me, but man, I, I don't deserve any of it. I had only a staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have two, become two groups, two large groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and the mothers and their children. Verse 22, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford at Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. Verse 24, so Jacob was left alone. So everybody else is gone. He's, he's tried to move them into a place of some safety and says then, and it's an odd thing happens, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Who is this guy? Where'd he come from? Well, we'll get to that in a second. A man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Hit below the belt here a little bit. Wrenched his, the socket of his hip. And then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Gotta love this guy. Always looking for an angle. And now I've wrestled, you know, I've wrestled in junior high. Try wrestling for three minutes. You're exhausted. All night long, Jacob and this other guy, this man, are wrestling, and, and it gets to daybreak. The guy says, let me go. Jacob says, no way, not going to happen unless you bless me. Verse 27, the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Now, I believe that he knew that the guy, this was Jacob, that he was sent by God, that he knew his name. He wasn't asking, well, what's your name? I want to make sure I get it straight. He was saying, who are you? Who are you? What, what's your character? Who are you? Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Verse 29, Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. And therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of it because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Let me recap. Jacob is preparing for the worst. God calls him to go home. He obeys. 
He crosses over. He realizes that, that, that uh, he better send some people to find, kind of test the waters. And what the report is, yeah, Jacob, uh, Israel's coming, but he's, um, excuse me, Esau's coming, but he's coming with 400 men, and, and that's enough to destroy every one of them. And so he does a smart thing. He cries out in prayer. He says, oh, God, please save me. But then something very odd happens. And it's just like all of a sudden it's inserted in the story. This guy shows up. Jacob is alone, and this man shows up and basically says, let's rumble. And all night long, they wrestle. And I can just imagine what that would have been like and what's going on. Who is this guy? Well, most theologians, guys much smarter than me, believe that it's a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. That this is actually before he came as a baby that, that Jesus showed up, that Christ showed up. Some uh, think it was an angel. Jacob said in verse 30 that I saw God face to face, so he knew it was a heavenly messenger, if not uh, the Son of God. But regardless of exactly who it was, we definitely know this. He was sent by God to Jacob, and he was sent for a reason. He didn't just show up by accident. It wasn't like, by the way, look, there's Jacob. Let's go wrestle all night. God sent him for a reason, and there's a purpose. In fact, there are two things I want to highlight here. And the first thing that, that happened is God broke Jacob. Does that bother anybody else besides you, me? Just a little bit. God broke this guy. God wrestled with him all night and hit him below the belt, wrenched the hip. Can you imagine how painful that must have been? Wrenched the, the, the hip out of his socket and, and hurt him big time. Verse 25, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled, and that's got to hurt. And God's behind this. Now, I know, we think, well, look, God would never hurt me. God's a good God. God loves me. God's all about taking, he's a good and kind and, and favorable father. Of course he is. Yes, he is. Yes, yes, yes. But we also seek throughout the word of God that he will use trials, struggles, even pain in our life to mold us, to carve us, to shape us into the image of his son. Now, I don't believe that God uh, is vindictive. He's not mean. I don't think he's out there just looking for ways out of spite to make us suffer. But we live in a world filled with suffering, with pain, with things that happen, and God never misses an opportunity to use those experiences to carve us and to mold us into the people he's destined us to become. I've said this so many times. I, I, I'm sure some of you are tired of hearing it, but that's okay, because I'm going to keep saying it. God's way more concerned about your character than he is your comfort. He is. He's way more concerned about the man or the woman he wants you to become. More concerned with your character than he is your comfort. And so he will use whatever is at his disposal, whatever he can. And in this particular case, don't miss this. God broke Jacob. He wrenched the socket out of his hip. And, and the, most believe that he, the Jews believe that Jacob walked with a limp for the rest of his life. They believe, as I do, that the limp was a constant reminder to him of this encounter that he had with God, this wrestling experience they had with God where he was changed, broken but changed. And that's the second thing that happened here, is that Jacob is given a new name. For us, that doesn't typically mean a whole lot. We don't get it. But he was given a new name and a blessing. In verse 28, the, this, this manifestation of God, this angel, whomever it was, said, you will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome. If you recall from last week, I said the name Jacob literally means heel grabber. He came out grabbing his brother's heel. He was a twin, and it means supplanter. It means conniving, deceiving one. It's not, you know, back then, names always had a, a meaning behind them. There was some reason why a person was named what they were named. 
And that's, you know, now we just kind of pick names out of a book because we like them or we make up whatever name that we want to use. And that's cool. It's great. But back then they had meaning. And can you imagine all of Jacob's life? He's being called basically the heel grabber, the supplanter, the deceiver, the manipulator, the one who's always about himself. And yet this manifestation, this, this presence of God in, in, in Jacob's life says, no, from now on, you're no longer going to be that man, but I'm going to give you a new identity. Now you're going to be called Israel. And Israel literally meant wrestler with God, but later became, came to mean God's prince. I love this. God wrestled with Jacob all night long, broke him, and then he gave him a new name and a blessing, a new identity. Something was broken in Jacob from that point on that he never forgot because of the limp he walked with, but he never forgot that God said, I've got something new. I've got a new destiny, a new name for you. Jacob struggled with God, but things were different now. Truth is, he was different. And his limp and his name were forever connected in a very powerful way for him. I uh, wish I never would have gone through my prodigal experience. And the truth is, um, I, I really, truly wish in my 20s I had not wandered away from God. I know that God can use anything, and if we surrender our lives to him, he takes us and he does the, mirac- the miraculous. He does. When I look back, and most of you have heard my story, if you read it in the book, in my 20s, I wandered far from God, and I fell fast, far, and hard, and got involved in all sorts of stupidity. I walked away from God, the church, tried to walk away from my wife. I was done. And I wish, I truly do wish, that I could have learned the lessons that I ended up learning through that prodigal experience some other way. If I had it to do all over, trust me, I wouldn't say, yeah, God, let's do that again. I'd say, no, I'm going to learn how to be the man you want me to be in a better way, a different way than going off in the, in the, the, the stupidity like I did. But here's what I do know. I know that when the moment came and I finally said yes to God, I have messed up, I have blown it, I have failed, I'm an idiot, forgive me, I want to come home. When I was the prodigal son who returned to him, I know that when I surrendered my life to God, that, that in that moment, in that second, he began to transform my pain and my past and my failure into something that he could use. Some of you get it. Some of you don't get it yet. But it's powerful when you understand that when we surrender our life, we surrender our pain, we surrender our problems, we surrender all those things that we've done, the failures that we've made, that it's in those moments that failure gets transformed from something that might be fatal to something that becomes glorious in his hands. He changes us. He redeems us. He renews, restores us. You see, one of the things that was true about me up until the time I fell away from the Lord, and I again wish this wasn't true, but I was a young Pharisee. I was cocky. I was spiritually arrogant. I thought I was smarter than most and knew more than most and that I had it all figured out that I was God's man. I grew up in the church and by the time I was five, six years old, I had all the books of the Bible memorized. I knew the Bible. I'd been to Bible school. I'd been a pastor and I thought, man, God's really lucky to have me. That was supposed to be a joke. (laughs) That was my attitude though. It's like, God, how cool am I? But when I fell, and I fell as hard as I did, from that moment when I returned to him, never again did I follow into the path of spiritual arrogance. If I'm anything now, I'm a a humble man. I walk with a limp. 
And I realized that part of what God did in that experience for me was he broke me of the spiritually arrogant, pharisaical attitudes that I have. He changed my heart. He changed my destiny, my purpose. It's what God does when we surrender our experience and our life and our past to him. You know, Esau's not talked a lot about in the story. But one of the things that amazes me is the change that happens in him as well. Let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 33. J- Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. At this point, still terrified. Can you imagine? You know, he's 400 guys and I'm sure they're decked out with swords and look like they're ready to rumble and do their own battle. So he divided, divided children among... Uh, so he divided children among Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Nothing like having favorites, huh? Guess you know who his favorites were. Verse 3, he himself, though, went on ahead. He went to the front of the group and bowed to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Now, if you've ever got a bad back, bad hip, or bad knees, imagine bowing down on the ground seven times. It's a painful experience for him. It's a humbling experience for him. He's in the front of everybody, all his, you know, family and all his stuff's behind him. And he's bowing before his brother seven times. And what is that? That is an act of humility and submission. He's saying, I'm your servant. I'm, I'm humbled. I'm broken. Verse four, though, I love this verse. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. And he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. They wept. You know, we don't know. I tell you, one of the guys I want to grab in heaven when I get there is, is Esau. Esau, that 20 years or so that Jacob was gone and, and, and far from you, what happened? How did God work in your heart? You see, when we experience painful things, his birthright was stolen, his blessing was stolen, and his brother book took off. And when we go through painful experiences, we always have a choice. Will we become bitter or better? And I don't know what happened in Esau's life, but what I do know is that this is a man who became better, not bitter. He ran to his brother, and they hugged, and they wept over each other. That's grace. That's God's goodness. That's the change that he brought in Esau's life, similar to the change that he brought in Jacob's. And Jacob walked with a limp. And I think every time Esau saw him, he saw his brother walking with a limp, and they were both reminded of this encounter. A long time ago, years ago, I was with a friend of mine in uh, Southern California. We were going to the beach and uh, to our favorite spot. And this is a good friend of mine. And he is, he is a handsome, studly, dark-skinned, dark-haired, chiseled. He's Dutch and Indonesian, and this guy is just, he is beautiful. <laughs> and I wouldn't necessarily look forward to walking next to a guy like that anywhere, but when you're half naked and you're walking on a beach next to a guy like that, it's even more intimidating. I didn't quite have the pot belly I have now, and I, I was a little younger and a little less gray hair, but I still, you know, I'm walking next to my friend the whole time thinking, I wish I looked half as good as he did, you know? So we're walking along the beach, but my friend had polio when he was a child, and he wasn't crippled, but he had uh, a, a slight limp. And we're walking by this, this uh, mom and daughter, and she's lathering her child up, maybe four or five, six years old, I don't know, with sunscreen. And we would, just as we walked by, the little girl goes, Mommy, why does that guy walk funny? And, I, I mean, I've just seen this whole thing play out. The mom takes her fully sunscreen lathered hand and slaps it over her daughter's mouth with that look, say one more word and you'll never talk again. 
you know, that, you gotta love kids though. They just, they don't, they don't, social, they don't know. They just say what's in their heart. But here's what struck me. I will never forget that moment. Because again, I'm thinking, man, I'm Vanessa, this guy. And, you, and then she, the little girl points out his limp. And then instantly, here's one through my mind. You know what? That little girl doesn't see it, but I walk with a limp too. It's not a physical limp, but it's a spiritual one and an emotional one. I walk with a limp just like he does. And most of us experience limps. Most of us have been broken at some point. And I know that a lot of people that, that have gone through life more than maybe six or seven or eight years of it, They've been wounded, they've been hurt, and lots of, us, lots of us walk through life with a limp as well. My hope, my prayer, my desire for you, though, is that that limp can be redemptive in your life. That God, that you'll let him use it. You see, it's okay. People with a limp, when they surrender their lives, when they surrender their brokenness to God, people like that, are, they're broken, but they're humble. They're approachable. They're people that you can relate to. They're people that, that have shared and hurts and pains of life, and so you, when you look them in the eye, you realize this is somebody I can trust because they've been there where I'm at now. Whatever self-righteous part of us is broken through our limping, through our, through our, our pain, and it makes us real, it makes us compassionate, it makes us trustworthy. And others will look at you, a life surrendered to him with its brokenness, and they'll say, I can trust that person. There'll be grace-driven people who walk with a limp, but there'll be people who make a difference in the lives of others. In his autobiography, Martin Luther King said this, God can transform men's weakness into his glorious opportunity. Love that. God can transform man's weakness into his glorious opportunity. God can take our weaknesses, even our past failures and mistakes, and he can turn them into a glorious opportunity. The issue for us is will we surrender it to him? When we do, restoration is his specialty. It's what he does best. He takes whatever we surrender to him, and he turns it into something that is good for us and good for others. Doesn't make the pain, the, the experience good, but he turns it, he transforms it into something that can be good for us. I don't know what you've done. Some of you, I know your stories. Most of you, I probably don't. But I do know this. God can fix, redeem, restore your life. He can bring something good out of any life fully surrendered to him. And so here's the last thing I want you to hear today. Failure is not fatal. Fa failure is not fatal with God. In fact, it's, it's his, his specialty is to take us in our brokenness and to transform us. You'll probably walk with a limp for the rest of your life. Welcome to the club. But God can use your past, your brokenness, and even your pain to bring about something beautiful out of the ashes of your despair. Restoration is what he does. One last story, and I'm going to pray for you. We'll be done. I uh, wrote about a week ago a, a blog post. It's called How to Have an Affair. And uh, the subtitle was And Ruin Everything. Now, to say that I had a few hits on that, I think the last time I checked, it's been almost 2,000 people that have uh, read that or clicked on that article in the last week. And I'm sure they were intrigued. How to have an affair? What? <laughs> What's he talking about? But I wrote this article basically out of uh, the pain I had about uh, dealing with a, a couple. In fact, about two weeks ago, I got a phone call. And I married this couple 12 years ago. And they live in another city, in another state. 
but I had the honor of officiating at their marriage, and I loved them. In fact, the woman I've known since she was in high school, I coached her in high school. I love that family, I love their son, and I, I was brokenhearted when they called and said, we think it's over, and they began to unpack their story and all the pain and all the suffering and all the hurt that they've gone through. And it broke my heart. But I told them what I'm telling you, what I wrote in that article and what I want you to hear today. Nothing, listen to me, nothing is bigger than God. No blunder, no failure, no mistake, no struggle, no thing that we could ever do is bigger than God's epic grace, epic ability to redeem, restore, renew. Our part is to surrender it to him. Our part is to say, God, I need you. Please invade my life. Invade this part of me that desperately needs you because I'm broken. And then we'll watch and see him do the amazing things that he does. Bow our heads. Let me pray for you. Father, I, um, I pray with all my heart, God, that we would leave here today not consumed by our failures, by our mistakes, not overwhelmed by our weaknesses and our frailties, but that we would look past them and see a God who's bigger. That we would understand that we have a choice to become bitter or better, to be consumed by the things that have been done against us or the things that we've done, to be ruined by them and for it to not end well, or to surrender our life into your hands, even the things we don't understand, even the things we don't get, even the things that have been so difficult for us. God, if we'll just trust you with our hearts and our lives, that's when you invade us and our experience, and you begin to redeem, restore, renew, and you lead us into a future that we could never, never have dreamt. God, the fact that I'm here today as a pastor with the privilege of leading this church, Lord, I know it's you. I know what you can do. I've been there. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I know your grace, Lord, and your favor. I know your kindness. And I know that you're a God who specializes in taking us in our brokenness and all the pieces, Lord. It just means you have more to work with and that you bring healing and wholeness and redemption to our lives. And I don't know, Lord, what brokenness my friends in this room or those listening online are experiencing in their pastor right now, but I do know this. I know it's not bigger than you. Maybe you're here today and you've not begun your life as a Christ follower. Keep your head bowed, your eyes closed just for a minute. I, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And you know, if you're in the, it, I don't have to twist your arm. You just know right now, okay, it's time. It's time for me to say yes to God. It's time for me to stop running from him and run to him. It's time for me to return. It's time for me to surrender. And if you know that's you and you want that, just make this prayer yours right now. Father, forgive me. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, thank you that you are bigger than my blunders and that you're a God able to redeem, restore my life. I can't understand how. I don't even get how you could do all of that. Why you would do that is beyond my understanding, and yet right here in this moment, I trust you. I surrender my heart to you, my life to you. 
And right here in this moment, I'm saying, yes, I will follow you. I'm yours. If that's you, and that's your heart today, just in your own way, say, yep, that's me, God. That, that guy prayed, that's my prayer. And the Lord is waiting there with open arms to embrace you, to hug you, to lead you into the life that he's destined you for from the beginning of time. Lord, show them what it means, what you're going to do. Show them what you have already done for them, what you'll do for them tomorrow and 10,000 tomorrows from tomorrow, God. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to finish one last song. I love this song. And I want to encourage you to make this your prayer. Make it a song unto him right now. Let's, let's worship. The difference between bitterness and better, hopelessness and hope, is surrender. Surrender of our life, surrender of our past, present, and our future to him. Today you began your life as a Christ follower. If you decided, man, it's time for me to come home, you've been a prodigal. I want you to tell somebody. You'll bless them. You'll make their day. Come tell me. On the tables, by the doors, you walk out. There's a packet for new believers. Got some material and Bible in there. Pick one of those up. But I want, to, I want you to know we want to walk with you in this journey. We want to be part of the community of faith in your life. So let us stand with you. On the same tables, lots of these flyers. I think we've got hundreds of them left still. I would love to see them all gone. Take them. Hand them out where you get coffee at the store. Give me your friends. Guys, this is a great opportunity to invite somebody who if they come this Friday night, maybe they'll come back at Christmas. Maybe they'll come back at Easter because the barrier's been broken. They, they came on a kind of non-threatening event with a best-selling author to hear a guy and next time they'll think about coming to East Point for a service and maybe they'll know the hope then because you invited them. If you invite them, they might know. They might experience hope. If you need prayer, prayer to be down front. Some of you are broken and you need people to pray with you today. Don't go that way. You come this way. And then communion is available on both sides of the room today as well. And what a great symbol of the brokenness of Jesus for us. But he did it so that we could live. My prayer for you today and this week is that you'll go. And out of your brokenness, you'll know the glory, the power, the grace of God in your life. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming.